Amen. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. When people ask my wife, Trissy, where she's from, she uh, usually responds by saying she's from Tulsa, Oklahoma, but she is actually not from Tulsa. She is from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, but no one has ever heard of Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, so she always says Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I I will confess to you that before we started dating, I'd never been to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Uh, I'd actually never been to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'd never been to Oklahoma. And, you know, if you're from Oklahoma, you know, I apologize ahead of time, but, but Why? Right? Why would I? Why would I go? Why would I go to Oklahoma? Right? What? What's there in Oklahoma? I have discovered subsequently that there are a lot of really great things in Oklahoma. Right? And um, famous people have come out of Oklahoma. Troy Aikman's from Oklahoma. Will Rogers is from uh, Oklahoma. Uh, Chuck Norris is from Oklahoma. That's right. Uh, Doctor Phil is from Oklahoma. I discovered that uh, Reed Drummond is from Oklahoma. Yeah, I got a couple of whoops there. That, that's uh, Pioneer Woman. Right, I learned Pioneer Woman is from Oklahoma. Carrie Underwood's from Oklahoma. Lots of famous people from Oklahoma. In fact, uh, there's kind of a principle here, and that is uh, people who accomplish great things often come from really obscure places. Right? In fact, that's usually how God chooses to work. Sometimes God breaks into human history in dramatic, powerful ways, but most of the time, he just takes ordinary people from ordinary places, and he does extraordinary things. And so this morning, we are going to look at a very ordinary place. We're going to look at Bethlehem and a really kind of typical event that happened, the birth of a child, that changed the course of human history, really changed our lives forever. So I want you to read with me, beginning in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths. She laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, you recall that uh, Luke was a physician, but he was also a historian. And so when he wrote the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts, he wanted to root these events in context, in the historical context for his audience, uh, a man named Theophilus. And so he drops these historical markers so Theophilus can orient himself in time. And he says, the story here, Theophilus, that I'm going to tell you as we begin this gospel, began in the days of Caesar Augustus, right? During the time when a census was being taken. Now, what's happening at this point in time is that uh, the people of Israel, the Jews, are largely oppressed and impoverished, which is how they had lived most of their history, in fact. Uh, They are under Roman rule, and in fact, they had only known a few years of of freedom and self-governance when the Maccabean family led a revolt against Rome and they pushed off uh, the, the Roman power, but now Rome is back in power and ruling over them, and Rome has appointed a, a puppet king 
who is evil. His name is Herod. He's called Herod the Great. And he's great because he built lots of stuff. And he built lots of big stuff, great palaces and buildings and offices. He even created a, a port where there was no port. It was an amazing feat of engineering. And he was, he was an engineer. He was a builder. And in order to make all of these great buildings throughout the nation of Israel, he had to tax the people heavily. So he taxed the people, Rome taxed the people. In fact, the reason that Caesar Augustus is commanding everybody to go to their hometown is so that everyone can be numbered, so that everyone can be taxed. Right? So these people are they're suffering, and even their own leaders of their own people are complicit in this oppression during this time. And they are crying out to God for deliverance. They are wanting God to speak from heaven and to shake the earth. They're crying out during this period for Messiah to come and, and just and change their lives completely. And God is in fact about to change their lives completely, but he doesn't shout from heaven. He doesn't shake the earth. Instead, he just whispers, right? He just, he just whispers. And really one of the most dramatic events in human history just passes by largely unnoticed, It's just the birth of a child. In fact, what we want to look at this morning is a pretty unremarkable event. uh, The advent or the arrival of the Son of God. Read with me again verse 4. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. See, God chose a completely unexceptional place, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, Even to this day, on a clear day, you can see Bethlehem from Jerusalem. You can see Jerusalem from Bethlehem. In Jesus' day, there were less than 1,000 people who lived in Bethlehem. Uh, Today, there are about 25,000 people in Bethlehem. It's a a small town. Even to this day, it's a small town. Uh, The only reason people go there largely is because they're tourists. Uh, Back in the third century, Constantine's mother, Helena, traveled throughout the Holy Lands, and when she got to Bethlehem, she said, you know what? Jesus was born there, right? She found a cave that she said, you know, I, I, that's, that's where I think Jesus must be born, and so a church was built there, and now tourists come to visit Bethlehem. But it's still an unexceptional place, right? I'd never been to Oklahoma before we were dating, and now I go to Oklahoma all the time. We drive to Oklahoma two or three, four times a year. And as we go to Oklahoma, we always pass through McAllister, Oklahoma. Anybody ever been to McAllister, Oklahoma? Can anybody go to McAllister and stop for any reason like other than gas? <laughs> no, okay, you did. You must have family in McAllister. Why would you? Okay, so who was born in McAllister, Oklahoma for the two of you? Reba McIntyre was born in McAllister. As you're driving in, there's a huge sign that says Reba McIntyre. This is the home of Reba McIntyre. And some of you are saying to yourselves, who's Reba McIntyre? Which just makes my point. <laughs> Obscure place. Right? Uh, let me put it, in, uh, let me put it in, in context for us. If you're an Aggie, College Station is like Jerusalem, right? That's not, you go, yeah, this is Jerusalem. So imagine College Station is like Jerusalem. So what's our Bethlehem? Our Bethlehem is Snook, right? Snook, Texas, that's like Bethlehem, right? Snook, uh, it's, it was on Highway 60, and, and now it's not even on Highway 60. They took Highway 60 around, so it's not even like you blink and you miss it. You just miss it now. You don't, nobody, why do you go to Snook? Nobody goes to Snook. You don't go to Snook. The only reason you would go to Snook is for sausage, Right? They got great sausage in Snook. Right? That's, that's kind of how Bethlehem was. 
Nobody went there. It does pop up in the biblical narrative several times. Samuel went to Bethlehem to anoint a king. But you remember when Samuel arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the city went out to meet him and they were trembling. They were afraid. Why? Because no one important ever came to Bethlehem. So they assumed that they had done something wrong. Otherwise, why would Samuel come to Bethlehem? See, God didn't choose Jerusalem. God didn't choose Rome. God didn't choose one of the other historical major cities in the region like Damascus or Nineveh or Babylon. He chose Bethlehem because that's how God works. He just takes ordinary people in ordinary places and he does extraordinary things. God chose an obscure family. Uh, What do we really know about Mary and Joseph? Mary was a peasant girl. She got married, maybe she was 14, 15, maybe 16 years old. Just a a young woman. We we don't really know much of anything about her. What do we know about Joseph? Well, we know that he was lower middle class. He was a tradesman. He was a carpenter. We'd like to think that he was a really great carpenter, right? And he built great tables and chairs that were the best in the city. But we don't even know that, do we? We know that he was competent, at least, because he earned a living for his family. But we don't know anything about the family. We say, well, yeah, but, but Mary and Joseph were both descended from the lineage of David. But, you know, David had thousands of descendants, and David himself came from an obscure family, right? He was from an obscure family himself. David himself was obscure until God elevated him and put him in a great place. Again, Samuel came to the city to anoint a king. He goes to the family of Jesse. He says, Jesse, can you bring out your sons? Jesse brings out his sons and Samuel sees the first son, the oldest son, the biggest, tallest, strongest, most handsome son, and he says to himself, this has got to be God's man. And God's spirit says to him, Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So Samuel says, do you have another? And he brings out the next son. That's not him. Next son. No, 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 no. Goes through all of his sons. And Samuel finally looks at Jesse and says, you got any more? And Jesse goes, oh, yes, I do actually. I do. There's, oh yeah, there's one more. Hold on. Let me get him. He's out in the field and he brings in David, a boy. And God's spirit speaks to Samuel. He says, that's the one, the little one, the, the runt of the family. I'll, I choose him. Right? This is how God chooses to work. In an unexceptional place, an obscure family, uh, a family that even in a sense started under uh, less than ideal circumstances. Mary was pregnant before they were married, and Joseph tried to keep a lid on that, but it became known. In fact, when Jesus became well-known in his ministry, he was despised for many reasons, but one of those was the family that he came from and his historical background. We don't really even know, Jesus, who your father was. That's where Jesus came from. It was an ordinary birth, typical ordinary. Verse 6, chapter 2. While they were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, Luke was a doctor, and so we know that Luke realized there was more to it than that, right? But what does he say? Well, nine months were up, and she had a boy, right? That's it. And, you know, and, uh, and 
I'm a guy, but I know there was more to it, right? I get it. There's, it's a little more complicated process than just uh, nine months are up and there's a baby happens. I, I, I understand that. But, uh, you know, and I've even been in the room with um, women where they're telling their stories about giving birth to children. And, and I've, I've left the room because, you know, the details just go on and on and on. So I just want you to know, moms, I'm sensitive to the fact that it's more complicated than that. But this is all Luke tells us. He just says, time was up. There was a boy. That's it. Right? Nothing out of the ordinary. Just an ordinary birth of a child. Typical child. And you know, billions of babies have been born. And Jesus was one of them. And you moms are saying, no, all babies are special. And I'm going to say, I know. I know. I get that. They're all special in exactly the same way. (laughs) When our son Benjamin was born, my mom came up to the hospital and she was there at the glass looking in on the nursery with all the babies and another grandmother came up and my mom was pointing my son Benjamin out and oh he's so beautiful he's so wonderful and they're in ooh and ah and she's just bragging on a newborn son at which point in time they're in the middle of this conversation I walked up and I had to gently carefully tell my mom I said well actually mom uh, that's not that's not Ben um (laughs) And none of those are Ben. Ben's in the room with Tristy. Well, they all look alike, you know? I mean, think about it. The wise men, they needed a star and a room full of scholars to find Jesus, right? Otherwise, they'd still be looking. They'd be like, is that him? I don't know. They all look alike to me. I don't know, right? It's just a baby. It's just a baby. That's, he didn't stand out in any respect. Just an ordinary child. Listen uh, to these words from Max Lucado. He wrote a wonderful book. It's called God Came Near. Regarding the incarnation, he said, that particular moment was like none other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became man. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent in one instant, made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. He who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent on the nourishment of a young girl. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party. The incarnation next to the resurrection is the greatest miracle that's occurred in human history, and it just happened. The eternal Son of God was just born. And he was just a typical child. Just a typical child in every respect except that he had the very nature of God in him. And this typical child grew up to be an inconspicuous man. I want you to mark your place here in Luke, because we'll be back to it in just a moment, and turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Isaiah 53, verse 1, the prophet writes, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah says, 
Who has seen the strength of God, the might of God to set the world right? Well, look at how he did it. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now, I've mentioned to you before that, you know, gardening, yard work kind of thing, it's not really my my deal. Uh, I've never won the yard of the month in my neighborhood, but about a year and a half ago, I decided that I should do something about it because our yard was a disaster. So I hired our neighbor. His, his former career was in landscape design. So he designed uh, some stuff for our landscape. And he said, um, you know, I can put it in for you or you can put it in yourself. And I said, I have a checkbook. Come on, you're going to put it in and I'll watch or I'll help a little bit. But, you know, you just got to get it done. And one of the things I asked him, I said, now don't, when you make our landscape, don't, don't put in bark mulch because I don't want to weed. I don't want to pull weed. I don't want to have to maintain something. So we, we agreed he would put in bull rock, which is um, it's a rock. It's about the size of your fist. They pull this rock out of the river, rinse it all out, and they lay it all down, and they put you know, some, uh, some paper underneath it so the weeds shouldn't come up. Well, they eventually come up, right? But the beauty is all you have to do is you just you hit your landscape with Roundup. So you never have to get over and pull weeds. That's how you, you maintain it with a spray bottle with Roundup. But when the weeds do start coming up, you do have to hit it with Roundup. Or they just begin to take over. And last spring, you know, a few, few months back, six months back, weed started coming up. And I said to myself, I need to hit it with Roundup. And then I didn't. And I waited. And Trish said, could you go pull those weeds? I said, I don't pull weeds, but I'll hit it with Roundup. But then I forgot to hit it with Roundup. And I didn't. And I waited. And I waited. And then, you know, by this, this past summer, our, you know, beautiful landscaping that we paid for, I mean, it, literally the weeds, were like, the weeds were this high. The weeds had completely taken over. And Trish was like, could you you know, do something, you know, my mom's coming. <laughs> Can you make this look good again? And you pull those weeds. I'm like, Ben, I got a better solution. Go get the trimmer, right? So Ben gets a trimmer and he just, he goes through our landscaping and just, just cuts everything down. And he tried to avoid some of the plantings and the rose bushes you could still see and some other things, but he's whacked it all down. It was awesome. And he finished whacking it down. Then he came in inside and he said, dad, did you realize that there's a tree growing up through one of the rose bushes? No, I didn't, didn't even see that. I didn't notice that. Uh, obviously, I haven't been paying attention closely. So just go cut it down. It's just tiny at this point in time. Just a tiny little tree. But useless and in the wrong place. Isaiah describes Jesus like that. Right? It's really graphic. Read again verse 1. He says, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him. That is, the Son of God grew up under the watchful eye of his father like a tender shoot. Uh, the, what he's describing there is a, is a sucker shoot, right, that comes off of a vine or off of a rose bush. It's the one you don't want, and so you just cut it off. So, or he's kind of like a root out of parched ground. When the ground becomes dry and the soil is rinsed away and there's just a dry root that's up above the ground, he says, that's Jesus. That's, that's what the Son of God was like. Completely unremarkable. If Jesus passed you on the street, you, you wouldn't turn and stop and stare. Now, it's ironic that um, when Mel Gibson made his movie, Passion of the Christ, he chose Jim Caviezel because Jim Caviezel was one of People Magazine's sexiest men alive, and he should have chose, chosen somebody that would never land on the cover of a magazine. That's Jesus. 
You know, we have four gospel accounts, right? Four books of the Bible, 3,779 verses, and we never have a single description of Jesus. David, we were told, is handsome, ruddy of appearance. Saul was head and shoulders above the rest. Uh, David's son, Absalom, is the most handsome man in the entire kingdom. Jesus, we don't know what he looked like, right? No stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. I want you to listen to this description. It's from a short book by Michael Green. It's called, Who is This Jesus? And he uh, describes, uh, or he includes here an anonymous writer wrote a description. It's called, One Solitary Life. It goes like this. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, he never held an office, he never had a family or owned a house. He did not go to college, he never visited a big city, he never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away, he was turned over to his enemies, he went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, which was the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and yet today he remains the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together have not affected the life of man on this planet so much as that one solitary life. Everything about the advent, the arrival of the eternal Son of God was ordinary. That's why the world just missed it. The world just missed it. Augustine once wrote, Man's maker was made man, that the bread... Might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey. The truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. The people were crying out, God, give us a dramatic solution. We have big problems in our lives. And then God just whispered. I want you to turn back with me to the Gospel of Luke again. Chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end." And what's remarkable to me about this story is Mary doesn't blink, right? The angel comes to her. First of all, an angel came to her, right? An angel and speaks to her and tells her, uh, 
your son is going to rule over all of the nation of Israel. He's going to get the throne of David. And not only will he reign over Israel, he will reign over the whole world. And his reign will go on forever and ever and ever. And Mary doesn't blink at that. What really kind of hangs her up is she says, now, hold on a second. Did you say I'm going to be pregnant? <laughs> Wait, I'm not, even, I'm not even married yet. Right? She doesn't, she doesn't blink that the answer to all of Israel's prayer is going to come through her She's just like, wait a second. How is this going to happen? Because I'm a virgin. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I'm a virgin, uh, Joseph and I are engaged, but we have never been together. The angel answered and he said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. She who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Mary said, Okay. Okay. God can save the world through me. I'm willing. All that she did was uh, accept, in a sense, God's will for her life. Uh, Joseph just accepted God's will for his life. His, he had a, a fiancé who was pregnant. He wanted to, to divorce her, but in a way that wouldn't embarrass her. The angel said, no, just, just marry her, Joseph, and move on. And Joseph and Mary didn't go on to do anything really dramatic and amazing other than just the simple act of submission and obedience to God in this moment and through this ordinary event, so to speak, ordinary family, typical town, God changed the world. God completely changed the course of human history. I want you to turn with me to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5. If you're not sure where Micah is, it's roughly in the, the middle toward the New Testament. It's part of the minor prophets. So Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, they're all bunched together. Uh, but we, we don't often read these minor prophets, but there's a lot of theology. And a lot of God's redemptive program is embedded in these pages. So I want you to read with me in Micah chapter 5. Verse 1. Micah writes, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops, they have laid siege against us with a rod. They will smite the judge or the ruler of Israel on the cheek. Here's the setting. Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. When Micah begins to write prophecy, things are going really, really well in Israel and Judah, right? The nations are, uh, the, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern called Judah, And both are doing really, really well. The borders have been expanded almost to the extent that Solomon ruled over. There's a lot of wealth, a lot of affluence in these nations, at least for some. The wealthy are becoming really, really, really wealthy, and the poor are becoming really, really, really poor. And the wealthy are taking land and wealth and animals and everything from the poor, and they are oppressing the poor. So from the outside, everything looks really good in these nations. But from the inside, it's not good. And the prophets are speaking against this. You're taking advantage of those who are vulnerable, care for the vulnerable, lead well, but they're not. 
And so a threat begins to emerge as Micah is conducting his ministry. This threat is the nation of Assyria. Assyria is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. It actually will eventually become one of the strongest nations or kingdoms that's ever existed in all of human history. They will also become one of the most oppressive and evil and tyrannical. And they are threatening the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Israel allies itself with uh, the Syrians or the Arameans in resisting Assyrian assault. And they try to bring in other smaller kingdoms around them. And so they go down and they try to convince Ahaz, king of Judah, to become part of their alliance against Assyria. And Ahaz says, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I'd love to be neutral, but if anything, I'll go with the big boy. I'll stick with Assyria, or if things get really bad, I can go down to Egypt and get some help from Egypt, but I'll trust in these greater nations around me. And so the Syrians or the Arameans and the Israelites threaten Judah and Jerusalem, and Ahaz is is frightened that his country will be conquered. So God comes and he speaks to him uh, through Isaiah, and he says, you know what? Ahaz, you can relax because I'm going to protect you. I can protect you. The Arameans and the Israelites, they won't won't conquer you. I have you. I will protect you. In fact, Ahaz, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz is self-righteous. Remember, this is in Isaiah chapter 7. He says, no, 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 I don't need a sign. Well, he's 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 not really being righteous because, in fact, what he's doing behind the scenes is he's trusting in these foreign nations around him, the big ones, to protect him. He's not trusting in the Lord. And so the Lord says, you know what, Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. There's a young woman here, and she's going to have a child. Before those, that, that child grows, gets to be you know, two or three years old, those two nations that are threatening you, they'll be gone. They'll be wiped out. And that's actually what happened. The Arameans, Syrians, and the Israelites, they got wiped out by Assyria. They're gone. He said, but you haven't trusted me. So because you haven't trusted me, those Assyrians are actually going to come, uh, and they're going to come right up to your gates. They're gonna, the waters are going to swell right up to your very neck because you didn't trust me. Because I am the only one who can, in fact, deliver. And so I'm going to send another child in the future, and that child will be assigned to you that I will set all of the world right. right? Micah is prophesying at the same time. And Micah says, in fact, that child's going to come in such an undramatic fashion that you might miss him. Read in verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, <laughs> you're too little to be even named among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago. This, this verse completely messed with the prophets and the scholars. God is saying from this tiny, obscure village, he will send a deliverer, but his deliverer actually has been around forever. His goings forth means his business. He's been conducting his business forever, and he will continue to conduct his business forever. In other words, you're going to receive a deliverer, a man will come who is eternal and will live forever, and he will rule and reign over Israel forever? That's what Mike is saying. That's what Isaiah was saying. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, there will be a child born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. From this obscure place, a deliverer will arise and he will establish a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. Verse 3. Therefore, he, that is God, will give them up. That is, they will be oppressed until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. That is, all of those nations, the north that was scattered by the Assyrians, the south that was scattered by the Babylonians to the ends of the earth, the Messiah, the the king, God's son, will come and he will gather them back to the nation. And he will arise and he will shepherd his flock. That is, he will protect them in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, that is, they will live safely and securely on the land because at that time he will be great even to the ends of the earth. This one, he will be our peace. He'll be our shalom. Right? Shalom, which is really theologically, it's one of the most important words in the Old Testament. The Jews now use it to say hello and and goodbye, right? It's just like howdy, just a greeting. It doesn't mean anything in their minds. But biblically speaking, it's one of the most important words in the entire Old Testament. It means fullness. It means completion. Shalom, in fact, is why you were made. You were made for shalom. Shalom is, is the fullness of God's blessings poured out upon your life. Safety and security And health, strength, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, relationships that are full and rich and satisfying without conflict, relationship with God that is full and rich, seeing the face of God. That's what shalom means. It's a a single word that is shorthand for the completion and fulfillment of your design. And the writer says, he, Jesus, is shalom. He's the one who will set all things right. How will he do it? Because right now, the world is under curse. The opposite of shalom is curse. The world is under this this darkness, which is a result of sin and death. But what the one who is our peace will do is he'll he'll pull that back. He will, in fact, take all of that darkness into himself so that he can bring the blessing of God. Isaiah chapter 25, it says, On this mountain, that is Jerusalem, the center of God's kingdom, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. And what is that veil? It tells us in the next verse. It's death. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all of the earth, for the Lord has spoken And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Let us rejoice in shalom. How does he do it? Well, he takes the veil, which is death, and he takes death into himself, right? The one who is eternal life swallows death for us. He drinks death for us because he's the only one who can conquer death. So he drinks it all the way down fully to the end of the cup. He takes all of your sins and all of my sins into himself and pays for them so that he can pull back that veil of death so that God can bring 
shalom, and blessing forever and ever and ever. Right? That's, that's really the essence of the gospel itself. Jesus hanging on the cross, drinking in death, paying the penalty for your sins and my sins to remove that barrier, that veil, so that God can bless you with life that lasts forever. And this is what really Christmas is reminding us of. It's reminding us that God caused himself, right, the eternal son of God, to become an embryo, grow into a baby, and grow into a man, take on human flesh, uh, and, and not just flesh of a man, but a slave, the creator serving, in order that he could die. Right? He took on that flesh so that he could die, so that he could pay the penalty for our sins. And we celebrate Christmas as the beginning point of that final redemption that we have, so we know we can have life in Jesus Christ. Christmas is the perfect time for us to remember and give thanks for the life that we have in God through Jesus Christ. It's a perfect time for us to help our friends and family look past all the cultural trappings of Christmas to the point which is God became man. So that man could die and give us life. That's the point. So how do we apply this? Uh, If I could ask uh, the men who are going to serve us communion this morning, if you would go back and get prepared as we think about how to apply this passage briefly. As I was contemplating a Christmas story, and I love uh, the season because I can begin to read back through all the narratives, and I was thinking about Bethlehem in particular, uh, a little town, a little village, and the smallness of, of that. And then the great things that got accomplished through this tiny little place, tiny little family, uh, it made me uh, remember that really, you know, what I want is I want God to do huge things in my life. Even in in Mary's day, the people were literally, they're crying out, God, we have enormous needs in our life. Do something for us and do something through us. And I think, God, I have have huge needs that I want you to meet and, and I want my life to be significant. I want you to do great things in me and through me. But I'm, I'm not remarkable. No offense, but you're not either. (laughs) I mean, we're just ordinary people. Right? We're not ruling over nations and kingdoms. We're just, we're just ordinary people. But we're exactly the kind of people that God wants to use. Right? Ordinary people from ordinary places. But our God is extraordinary. So he does remarkable things through people just like us. When we behave like Mary and Joseph, and we just say, Yes, Lord. Behold, the slave, the slave of God. Do with me what you will. You know, those simple acts of obedience, you know, giving a cup of cold water, God says, way to go. That's all I ask you to do today, just that cup of cold water. So in this season, I want us to begin to pray that God would give us opportunities, moments, just simple acts of faithfulness and obedience. We live in a culture in which people, in a sense, really can't avoid Christmas. They can write happy holidays over everything, season's greetings and all that, but Christmas is really kind of embedded in our culture. That's a Christmas tree. You go to the lot to get a Christmas tree. It's all around us, but it's missed by most people because of buying presents and getting presents and lights and decorations and all that. But we will have moments, you know, sharing a meal, uh, sharing a cup of coffee, when we can uh, pray. Say, God, give me those moments where I can just courageously, a small act of obedience, point to Jesus. 
I point to Jesus because the the people that you're sitting with, friends and family that you'll interact with over this season who don't know Jesus, they are crying out. They have big needs in their lives. They have big things that they need God to solve, but they don't know that it's God who needs to solve them. And we are the ones who can point them to the Savior, Jesus. And so let's just pray that God gives us opportunities, just small opportunities to speak for Jesus during this season. If I could ask the men to come forward, and as they're serving us, I want us just to take a few moments and and thank Jesus that he was willing to uh, set aside glory, uh, the glory that he shared with the Father, and become small, to become humble, uh, to take on not just humanity, but even the form of a slave, a servant, so that he could die for us. Let's just take a few moments and thank Jesus that he was willing to do that for us. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, even from the days of eternity. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, this bread is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup also after uh, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to let your body be broken and that you drank the cup of suffering and death all the way down, fully taking on the penalty of each and every one of all of our sins, taking the veil, which was death, and tearing it in two, taking death into yourself because you are life, conquering sin and conquering death forever so that we can have life. We pray, Father, that that would give us great peace and hope and confidence and also courage to share that life with others. Father, we acknowledge that we are just ordinary people and yet we serve a truly extraordinary God, a great God. And you can do great things in our lives, change us, you can do great things through us to bring life to others. And pray, Father, we would look for and expect those moments, those opportunities to speak truth, to speak life, to speak of Jesus during this season. Father, we thank you for his willingness to become small, to humble himself, even to take on the form of a slave, a servant, to suffer and die for us that we could have life and we could share life with others. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Quick reminder, Zach asked me to remind you again. Remember, no service uh, next Sunday in the morning here. There are services regular times at the other campuses, but we will have worship service here at 5 o'clock next Sunday. So we'll see you then.